0: Every time we come up with something like revenue operations in tech, a whole bunch of people will give people that title, but not actually do what it means, right? You see a lot of people with revenue operations in their title right now that are actually just sales ops people. And there's one key difference there, which is sales ops people do ops and enablement for your sales team. They're working with companies that are being driven by sales specifically, and they're really running an old go-to-market strategy where sales is the engine behind everything. Revenue operations is taking a look cross-departmentally, so I'm not just showing up and doing sales op work.
1: Hi, friends, welcome to the sales enablement podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Jordan Henderson. He's the director of revenue operations, otherwise known as RevOps, here at Ring DNA. And in our conversation today, we're going to talk about, yeah, that's right, Revenue Operations, RevOps. Now, if you've heard talk about RevOps and you're not exactly sure what it is, then this is the episode for you. Jordan leads off by telling us how and why a lawyer ends up in revenue operations, and then we dive into what RevOps is, why it's such a critical function for sales organizations in our digital selling world. We also dig into what it means to have a revenue operations go to market strategy, and then we delve into some predictions about how RevOps will continue to evolve and grow. So again, this and much, much more. But before we get to Jordan, I just want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So uh, where have we been hanging out during the pandemic?
0: Uh, Right now, I'm actually hanging out in uh, Running Springs, California. Uh, I've been uh, traveling around the West Coast, but I actually uh, have a cabin up here, kind of up by Big Bear, um, and I've spent the last uh, month here in the foreseeable future, uh, which is nice. Get out of the city a little bit. How about yourself?
1: San Diego, but um, Big Bear. So do you have kids?
0: No, no, nothing that nothing that elaborate I just have a a tiny cabin up here uh has pretty good internet, so it's been a nice place to to relax,
1: yeah, fewer people, yeah,
0: definitely yeah uh, and uh less noise it's uh, nice and quiet,
1: yeah, well, I imagine yeah and in, you're in the mountains people don't know there's very tall mountains, just uh, to the east of Los Angeles, and you're sort of up in those. Yeah, it takes a ninety-minute drive from from my house in West Hollywood to get up here,
0: and it goes from a hundred feet in elevation to six thousand. Six thousand. There you in, go. In those ninety feet in the ninety minutes, so
1: it's yeah, quick. I was, always like those days in the winter where these cloudless, smogless <laughs> days, where <laughs> the, the mountains just appear right there. Suddenly, it's like huh, I've been here a dozen times. I've never seen those mountains before. And then suddenly, yeah, oop, they're there.
0: Yeah, you forget they're in your backyard.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's much better now, air quality, than it was 20, 30 years ago. So, you see them more frequently.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine that that's
1: true. And you're down in San Diego? In San Diego, yeah. yeah. So, not a bad day down here. No, um, best weather. Yeah, maybe the best. So, your namesake is one of my favorite <laughs> football players. I knew you were going to bring this up. So, so well my yeah, the audience knows that I'm a big soccer fan, football, mm-hmm. the real football, not the game that no one actually touches the ball with their feet. Um <laughs> and uh, yeah, one of the star players for Liverpool, my team, is named Jordan Henderson. So, have you ever been confused like gotten messages have I, for him? Have, have I ever told
0: you told you that story about uh when he was playing in the World Cup?
1: No, no. So, this was in 2018, the Russia World Cup.
0: Uh, no, it was 20, 2014 I Okay, believe. it was, it was much Brazil? earlier in his career. Yeah, yeah, in Brazil. Um, and and sort of ironically, and you're, you're a fan, so you'll know he he's roughly the same height as I am. Same same kind of look, similar haircut, mm-hmm. uh, and actually about a year apart in age. So we we look kind of strangely similar, and have and have the same name. And so I had right. a, a Twitter account at Jordan Henderson. Which I no longer have. And
1: for, I think for reasons we're about to hear. For,
0: for reasons <laughs> you're about to hear. Which uh, he in 2014 he had a bit of a rough World Cup. Um, yeah. The pretty pretty big disappointment. Yeah. And uh, I don't watch football at all. I watch American football. I don't watch a lot of soccer. I'm sorry. Um, we'll convert and, you, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hmm. So so one day I go to log into Twitter and I have 80, 90 messages and I'm. <laughs> sort of confused because I have about that many followers at the time. And, <laughs> and uh, turns out he botched a game and around 90 people decided that they were going to find him on Twitter and let him know how he felt about that. Uh, so I, I just logged into Twitter one day and I had 90 threats and angry messages <laughs> targeted at Jordan <laughs> Henderson. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? And I had to I had it. To it took me talking to somebody before I realized that this person existed, and they were all intended for some soccer player from Liverpool, which was crazy.
1: <sighs> yeah, yeah. Now you, you'll now you'll be glad to know. Maybe you follow this, but you know he's totally redeemed himself. I mean, he is now considered sort of this icon of of uh, English football and uh, the leader of the English side. So um, yeah, he's he's uh, sort of this this paragon.
0: Yeah, I've sort of uh, since then followed his career a little bit, and he seemed he he seemed like he was really young at the time and just had a rough first World Cup. Um, but yeah, it's uh, a
1: big stage to have. I haven't
0: Cup. I haven't gotten any threats since then, so I assume that he's
1: doing a lot better. <laughs> well, now you should start trading on it. That'd be the thing to do. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's been a there's been a handful of instances where, where that's happened, or people have mentioned it. Um, there's even a a group of there's a Facebook group for people who have the same name as famous soccer players, and I've been invited to that a handful of times. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> such a weird organization.
1: <laughs> there's something for everyone on Facebook. It really, it really is. <laughs> All right, I'll have to check that one out. That's a little scary. Yeah. Um, well, not scary. Some other stuff there, but that's kind of scary. So, um, you have sort of an unusual route you've taken to revenue operations. I mean, you, you did you grow up in in north dakota or is it minnesota you grew up
0: in uh north dakota north yeah dakota.
1: so went to a small catholic school there uh i
0: actually went to a one-room schoolhouse for most of my childhood uh one of the last people in the u.s to do it grew up on a sixth generation family farm and wow then,
1: now where they farm what do you farm
0: uh cattle mostly cattle so mostly we, cattle. we about about 800 head of charlotte uh cattle
1: wow um, high end
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not exactly, uh, but uh, but yeah, we we've, our family's been up there for 100 and 125 years now, I think, or so. Wow, uh, my brother is actually back taking over the uh, the ranch now, as we speak. So, um, so no yeah.
1: no crops now. Where where in North Dakota?
0: Uh, Headinger, North Dakota is where I'm from originally about 15 miles outside of Headinger in, in rural, uh, <laughs> Dakotas, but, uh,
1: yeah, now Headinger, I don't really know where that yeah, is. Yeah. So, I have to, that's so between, between Bismarck and Minot somewhere. Uh, no, actually about four
0: hours from Minot, three hours from Bismarck. We're, we're about we're halfway. Yeah. yeah. About halfway between Bismarck and Rapid City. If you were to drive yeah. them. Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So, a lot of winter up there.
0: A lot of winter. I um, went to, uh, grew up in Hedinger in, on the farm and then went to Catholic school in Bismarck, actually, and then uh, law school out in Minnesota before ending up in, in Los Angeles about six, seven years ago now.
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting journey. So, I mean, you, you're you a football player and a wrestler, you said. Law school yep. in Minnesota, you even went had past the bar, so you didn't plan on practicing law? You just had this burning desire to be in sales?
0: <laughs> All I ever wanted was revenue operations. All no. I ever wanted. Uh, yeah, yeah. we needed that a that law were. degree
1: to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, I wish that that were true. Um, no, I did practice actually briefly. I, I am still a licensed attorney. I've, I've, I've maintained my license, which is um, sort of surprising to people, I think. I practiced for a couple of years out of law school. What type uh, of law? Uh corporate mostly. Uh MA okay. work. And then um I actually to be totally honest, um sure, push this this uh, yeah, up yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just interesting. I um I didn't I probably practiced less than I sold as a as a an, an attorney, to be honest. Um, Most of what I did,
1: first year associate, they're having you out developing business.
0: I did a lot of client acquisition in my first couple of years. Yeah, wow, a lot of in-person meetings. Didn't do a lot of practicing. I don't. I still never really know if it was because I was a really bad attorney and they thought (laughs) that that (laughs) was the way that they should use me, or if I was really good at customer or at client acquisition. So I'm gonna chalk it up to the latter, but know that it probably could have been the former as well.
1: Wow, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, usually at least in big firms. So because I've done some training for for law firms. Uh, actually, did a, a day long thing with a group of people for um, DLA Piper. Yeah, and yeah, talking to their oh, several hundred of their first year associates they brought together. It's like. Yeah, they don't really let us go out and do that.
0: Type yeah, of thing. not not <laughs> until years six, seven, and eight. Really, It's yeah. typi- typically where that that kicks in. I did a little bit of um, government affairs work at the firm I was with, Dorsey mm-hmm. and Whitney, and uh, there was a very small department there for GA work, and so that was I, I became a lot more customer facing, I think, than a lot of my peers because they were in three hundred attorney you know divisions, and I was in a six right. attorney division.
1: Right. Yeah. All right. So. You decide to shuck the law firm uh, career and and go to L.A. Why?
0: Good question. I actually moved to LA. Uh, was still was still actually practicing out here for about a year when I first got to LA. Um, it was uh, mostly just to get out of the the cold winters. to be so, totally so you took California bar as well. I didn't actually. I, okay. I was I was practicing uh, in a, in a manner that I didn't really need to have the got California it. bar. Also, I, like at that point, I was mostly doing client acquisition. About ninety five percent of my time. Got it. Um, and I was out here for about a year, I met some people at a software company that was in downtown LA, which is where I, I lived and worked as well. Um, they convinced me to leave law and take the lowest entry-level tech job that I can ever imagine, uh, just to just to try to make the shift and get into tech, which I was really interested in doing at the time. Um, sort of quickly entered a company as a CSM, uh, mm-hmm. shifted into CS ops, and then sales ops, and then ultimately revenue ops and so sort of um, did that all within a couple of years actually um, so I, and within that time I did some SDR work managed SDRs ran a sales pipeline I've kind of worn all the hats um, mm-hmm. and I've been doing sort of director of director of uh, revenue operations and you know sales leadership stuff ever since
1: yeah so for people aren't really tied into these discussions online sort of the echo chamber of LinkedIn so what Tell them what the difference is between sales ops and revenue ops.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a huge difference. I think it's it's actually one of my bigger pet peeves right now. Is oh, that good. Let's dive uh, yeah, into it. yeah, yeah, let's dive into the pet peeve. Uh, I'll push I push your button every time. Every time we come up with something like revenue operations in tech, a whole bunch of people will give people that title, but not actually do what it what it means. Right. you, you well, see sure. a lot of people with revenue operations in their title right now that are actually just sales ops people. And, and, and there's one key difference there, which is sales ops people do ops and enablement for your sales team. They're they're working with companies and that are being driven by sales specifically, and they're and they're really running an old go to market strategy where sales is the engine behind everything. Revenue operations is is taking a look cross departmentally, so it's I, I'm not just showing up and doing sales ops work. It's a piece of it for sure. It's mm-hmm. a big piece of it. Marketing ops is huge. CS ops is huge. I work with finance on ops. I do a lot of legal ops stuff. It's the entire customer-facing journey of your company, your entire GTM strategies, ops, and it's not being driven by one specific division. It's being driven ultimately by the buyer. If we're being you know totally candid. sure, but um, but but yeah, it's uh, I, I would say like half the people that call themselves rev ops right now or have rev ops are actually just doing sales ops.
1: And so again, just to sort of summarize, so sales ops, sort of the traditional sales-driven go-to-market strategies. Um no, I mean probably some some interaction with marketing, but not as aligned with yeah, really the difference with revenue it's, operations.
0: It's like the down funnel interaction with with marketing, right? Like marketing mm-hmm. creates a bunch of leads and then kicks them to sales. And the the sales ops piece of that is making sure that sales gets what it needs from marketing to actually attack those leads. And that's pretty much their interaction with marketing. There's no there's no upstream feedback. There's no helping with the marketing ops in general. Mm-hmm. There's none of that.
1: So it becomes the focal point for all that revenue operations does. Does I mean, do companies have both RevOps and sales ops?
0: Yeah, we do here, obviously at Ring DNA. Um it's uh it's super important. I mean, you still need people whose sole focus is the sales operation. There needs to be somebody managing Salesforce and doing those sorts of things and just helping out with their day-to-day operations, but there needs to be somebody with that more holistic view as well.
1: And from a sort of reporting structure standpoint, I mean how does that work? I mean, sales ops report to revenue ops, or does who who reports to revenue ops? Anybody, or are you just more of a a global facilitator?
0: I, I think it can be one or the other, and it, it depends a bit on your structure. Here, here at RingDNA, our sales ops analyst rolls rolls into me uh, directly, and that's that's super helpful because we're we're super well aligned. Our marketing ops person doesn't; they roll into marketing, and that still works really really well. We're, we're very closely aligned on a lot of things, and and same with CS and. and uh, finance on that piece as well. I think it really comes down to whether or not you have the authority and mandate to still align everything regardless of the reporting structure.
1: Yeah, well doesn't isn't that somewhat problematic if I mean cuz I know that and I believe is the ultimate goal as as RevOps gets rolled out more broadly is that almost like a return to to the past where there was one person responsible for both revenue or for both excuse me, from a revenue standpoint from both sales and marketing. I mean, isn't that isn't that the ultimate goal of alignment is you just have one final point of responsibility for revenue?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the goal, and it it's cross marketing sales and NCS. I think CS is a huge piece of that. NCS, I,
1: I didn't mean yeah, to yeah, ignore. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, CS, no, no, sure. no, no, no. Yeah.
0: Um, But yeah, I mean, t- I, I think that is this is certainly the ultimate goal. I actually don't know that I I view it as problematic for like our marketing ops team to roll into the marketing umbrella, and I and I think that's. Maybe a bit unique to Ring DNA. I think at most companies that would be problematic, but at Ring DNA, we have you know Howard, our CEO, William, CMO, Cameron, our CSO, who are all so oriented around revenue operations as our GTM strategy that it really doesn't seem to matter. I think if you were at a company where that wasn't necessarily the case, you didn't have that level of executive mandate that that you it would potentially be problematic. But I mm-hmm. haven't run into that issue here.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and personally, I see in the long run, if you really want this concept to work, which seems to make total sense, is like I said I think it at some point it needs to be unified because the silos the silos are always going to exist. I mean, it's, yeah. it's they're there whether people feel they're working together smoothly yeah. or not, and they may very well be, as you said, it's it's at some point it's got to be a single vision, a single source of truth, right?
0: Well, I, yeah, I think you're right, and I think um, you know. The biggest thing is the, the only way to eliminate the silos is to create upstream feedback loops. So every everything needs yep. to be sort of cross-functional. And, and it's just definitely going to be a lot easier to do that if it all rolls into one function.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about, you sort of alluded to this earlier, let's talk about the difference revenue operations will make, let's say, in the buyer experience. So what, what are you seeing in that regard? Because personally, I think that... <laughs> I think the sales, the sales process and the buyer journey are really completely unaligned at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. Um
0: man, it it feels like a really big question. Um the I, I think it's gonna be buyer driven. And and I, I think we've talked about, you know, meeting the buyer where they are, having it be a buyer-driven process for so long in sales specifically and even in even marketing um but but what that's meant has been like when you cold call them help them identify a problem and then steer that conversation like meet them where they are on the cold call and i don't i don't think that that's where this is ultimately going i think i think we're letting we're getting to a point where we're using data intent data in a in an entire omni channel presence across sales and marketing to where buyers are actually signaling to you when they're ready to have conversations and signaling to you what problems they have and that's when you're bringing in the the specific people to field that and so in that regard you're not actually you know digging in with them to help uncover that you're letting them uncover their pain points and then you're helping them solve them and so it really is buyer driven
1: yeah though I think there's a so I'll, I'll differ a little bit on that because I think that that one of the roles that sellers really have to play, which is not one of the areas where it's really not aligned, is buyers need uh, the sellers' help to really define the problem they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about, um, I'll take something like the challenger sale. I mean, really, what's the challenge? Right? The challenge is it's most commonly defined as well. How do I, how do I help you rethink? This idea of what it is you think you need to accomplish, right? Which is really sir, sort of, how do I help you sort of look, assume, a different, or acquire a different paradigm perhaps about what your problem is and what the scope of it is and what the impact will be of solving it. And, and like when you go through a, uh, this is where I think the misalignment exists, is you know, when you go through a, a typical sales process, you know, go through the stages of a sales process companies have, and then you go through the stages of, the buyer's journey, a the terminology is not the same at all, they're not aligned at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, and this is this is not a new problem, this goes back 100 years, uh, <laughs> but we haven't solved it. Mm-hmm. And we thought by that's why I always get amused when I hear people use this term modern sales. It's like, <laughs> fine, you've applied technology to this old process, so it was still the old process, right? It's it's like you know, when the buyers are going through their journey, you know, their first step is they have to define what the problem is. I think what the intent that it does is says, well, look, I've identified a problem, but there's a big difference between identifying it and defining it. And yeah. if sellers, you know, you can go through, you know, I did this idly a couple weeks ago. I Googled sales process, B2B sales processes and you know, looked at all the graphical representations of it. None of them align to what the buyer is going through.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I I think, I think part of the problem we're talking about though is is that you're right. You do have to help, but you're always going to have to help a buyer define the problem they're seeing or frame the problem they're seeing, right? Sure. Um, and and I think right now when we have this very much sales driven process, marketing creates a bunch of leads, and then kicks them to sales. And at that point, sales is like, great. So, let's dig in and find your problem, identify it, so on and so forth. I think part of this whole journey is to take it to the point where marketing is helping frame that problem or define that problem. By the time they get to sales, by the time they have the level of intent that sales is now involved, they at least have most of that problem identified in their head. And that conversation becomes much easier. We're, not, we're now not selling them on the problem because they're already partially sold on it. So now we're just affirming that that is the problem and then going into the solution mode much, much more rapidly.
1: Well, but I think there's a gap there. And so if this is where I think, because you know, it, it would be great, you know, the way you're describing it, if, if you know, win rates were not so abysmally low as they are in most science <laughs> yeah. companies. Yep. And then you'd say, well, wow, that, this, this is working. But the fact is, it's not. The fact is, one of the big gaps is one of the reasons I believe that close rates, not win rates, but even close rates are are bad, is that we're we're not executing that middle part of the funnel where the sales actually takes place. Yeah, We're getting really good at top of funnel stuff. And with intent data, that helps further. Targeting, that helps further. But then, when you first engage with a customer, I think what happens, no, I think I know what happens, (laughs) is that a seller goes in and and does some level of discovery and says, oh, okay, I know what the problem is. But what they do is they know what the problem is, but they don't understand what the problem is.
0: Hmm.
1: And there's a huge gap there. And that lack of, that gap and chasm between knowing and understanding, suddenly you're off on the wrong foot. And this is, I think, where where sellers are more consistently successful, understand is that, yeah, it's not, it's not about I said knowing. It's about really, it's about understanding. Cause mm-hmm. when I understand and I can make the buyer feel understood, I've differentiated myself from everybody else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, but, I
1: agree with you. but then you look back to the sales process and sales process, well, let's do needs analysis and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, well none of that tracks to what the buyer's doing. And, and I think until we, we get that really aligned, that we're, our stage as a seller is defined with the same exit criteria as the buyers exiting their stage, I think we're always going to have this mismatch. And I think that's, that's to me, is, is a core problem. Yeah, not
0: just not just identifying the problem, but understanding it and actually understanding the implications that it has for the customer. Yeah, so not, not just hey, like this is a big problem because we're not making enough phone calls. But it's a big problem because <laughs> we're not making enough phone calls because the fewer phone calls we make, the less pipeline we and drive, what's the, the impact of that? with less revenue we bring in, and so on and so yeah, forth. But,
1: and and I think. In the majority of cases, what happens, sellers you know, are trained, they have some experience. They ask a sort of a set group of questions that they get familiar with, or whether it's heavily scripted or not, eventually everybody sort of has their own personal script, but you gotta be willing and able to go off that script because everybody's gonna be unique in some respect. And so I just sort of the bigger point is I think that until we're at a point where you look at a sales process and the stages of a sales process and the exit criteria for that those stages are equivalent to the buyer's exit criteria for them exiting that stage. I said we're always going to have this this mismatch mm-hmm. and it's going to have an impact on people's ability to close business because yeah, you know, if, if I could do a pipeline review or not a, or let's say a, a one lost deal review, yeah, I can almost always find the cause happening during discovery and qualification. Yeah. Almost universally. Yep. And yet, yeah, you know, Part of the problem is, is we treat discovery as this discre- discrete experience, right? We do discovery up front, you know, step three in our process. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, but it's not a one-and-done thing. Yeah, you, know, you, you have to discover every time you interact with the prospect because what's happening with them is they're going through their buying process. They're talking to your competitors, they're doing all this work, they're educating themselves, they're getting smarter, they're getting mm-hmm. a new perspective on the problem they're trying to solve. And so the discovery you may have done two weeks ago may not be valid anymore, yeah, and wouldn't you want to, wouldn't you want to know that
0: yeah as they as they continue to flush out the problem they're going to think of the upstream downstream impacts the entire the entire actual impact right. of the problem they've identified right, but
1: we've got discovery as a checkbox <laughs> in our sales
0: and we're process, done with it and, and we're then done, we're with done. It, and we don't yeah. revisit
1: it, and the customer yeah. evolves, yeah, same thing is true with qualification, yeah, something could look like a good, have a good product market fit. Uh, early in the process, but as they get become more sophisticated about the problem they're trying to solve and more educated, yeah, maybe not. Or maybe they're really open to you coming in with a yeah, you know, a unique insight and question to help them sort of rethink what they're trying to accomplish. Presents an opportunity, but if you sort of put a checkbox by it and move on, it's a problem. So this is where, not to get in my soapbox about this, which I just did, but it's it's <laughs> it's my show. I can do that. Um, yeah. Is that is that we've got this. Sellers marching down a path that just doesn't, for the most part, relate to what the buyers going through. It's um, it's
0: interesting because there, there's a way I see that rolling into revenue operations. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that that well, specifically, there's sort of two things. There's one one at Ring DNA. Um, we sell software that helps your revenue operation. So right. so I'm I'm for most purposes an example of our target buyer. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you when somebody talks to me, like if our seller talks to me and I and we identify a problem and define it together. I'm thinking of it not just as a sales ops person. I'm not thinking of, hey, we're not making enough calls as, hey, we're not self-generating enough pipeline. I'm thinking of, we're not making enough calls, which means we're not self-generating enough pipeline. We're also not making enough calls against the leads that marketing is spending a bunch of money to generate. We're not leveraging these three softwares properly that we've Mm -hmm. purchased. So we're not getting our ROI on those. Like, here's the four problems that this is causing, and it's actually across four different teams, right? And understanding that at the outset helps our sellers much more rapidly help a customer evolve their discovery so we can identify more of those pain points. I'm also thinking now, now, as we're talking about it, companies with revenue operations, people that are truly doing this are going to have a better understanding of these implications. It's going to be less like forming out the problem through a nine call, you know, discovery process than just somebody there actually understands the implications across three different teams instead of just one. Which yeah. I think I think is missing, and to, to your point, like when, when we call, you know, ahead of sales, and they tell a problem to us, they're thinking of it how this problem associates to sales, and then when they talk to two other companies, they might identify this problem also impacts CS, this problem also p- impacts marketing, but it might take six conversations to get there, and, and we're not getting there sooner because they don't have revenue operations.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I I think that's you know it's valuable. I think that one of the the key things that conclusions after you know forty plus years doing this that I've <laughs> drawn is, is that, and I look at the fact that you know we're trying to it's like ground like the movie Groundhog Day right every every day you wake up sales is trying to solve the same problems they've been trying to solve for hundred years, and, and it's like well okay why is that the case what what needs to change right when you read sales books you know it's all about. The same issues about prospecting, and yeah, I, I I could you know write a, a book just about the categories (laughs) of books that are written that, that people are just sort of repeating, right? And, yeah, how do you connect? How do you build rapport? How do you do discovery? How do you ask? I I can go down through the list, right? So it's like, what needs to change, in order to say we're just, yeah, we're not getting better Mm -hmm. at sales. I know this. I not to not to insult more current generations, but. Yeah, you, know, you would think that with all the impact of all the technology we've invested in and it's been developed over the past certain last 20 years and for B2B sales, that the productivity of the individual seller as defined by it I use the definition of my definition, which is dollars of revenue they generate per hour of selling time, which is the measure of productivity, not activity, but you know, it, what's productive as revenue. Mm-hmm. When you measure that productivity, it has the needle hasn't moved in in the past several decades. I mean, there's no data that shows that it's moved. In fact, there's anecdotal data says maybe it maybe it's gotten a little worse. Mm-hmm. So, but just assuming it's the same, it's like how can that be?
0: I, uh, it's a great question that I don't know that I have a. Clear answer to <laughs> well, yeah, it's more, it's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the rhetorical question, the rhetorical question, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, no, yeah I'm really I disappointed, mean, Jordan. You don't have the yeah, answer. The, that.
0: the person who can solve that one is going to.
1: Well, but I think I think it's it gets back to sort of thing. I think the opportunity with revenue operations mm. and this alignment across departments to say, well, let's 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 relook at what it is sales is really trying to accomplish, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if and and I just and I think the start with you know, when you align your sales process with the buying process, what you're saying is, yeah, I'm not really here. My mission is not to get an order for my product. My mission is to help the customer solve a problem.
0: Right. My my next call isn't just a demo because that's the next step in my pipeline. My next yes. call is my next call is a demo because that's where we're at. We've identified all the discovery things that we need to identify and we're ready to do a demo and dive into how we can solve this problem.
1: Exactly, because right, right. now when you look at stages of a sales process, we you know, we have our XR criteria and we that's how we define progress. But it's not at all how the buyer defines progress. You know, Gartner in their study of buyer enablement 2 years ago said that that <laughs> actually, buyers measure value they receive from sellers by progress towards making a decision, and it's that's it's sort of you know ill-defined what that is, but buyers know it and they feel it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, it, and so it's like, yeah, we 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 check boxes on things we said we've done that that don't get us actually closer to actually winning. Winning the business.
0: Well, and it's just a bad buyer experience. Like at the end of the day, if 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 you're just checking boxes for the sake of checking boxes in your stage, the buyer can feel that. They absolutely know that that that's happening. But that's predominantly what happens. Absolutely, it is. Um, And and it's not because most companies aren't aligning their sales process to where buyers are at. It's a sales back to you know. We haven't improved in forty years, fifty years. We haven't really changed from being sales driven in the past forty or fifty no, that's years. J- absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. We are uh, still a sales driven world.
1: Well, I mean, every well, within sales, right. And yeah. so yeah, there's been all sorts of lip service given to being, you know, service oriented and buyer centric and so on, but it's never it's if unless it's reflected in the process you implement to work with the buyer, it's never gonna change. And I think yeah. that's the big thing. Is this we've got a perspective change that needs to happen if we want to be, get serious about really improving what sellers do and becoming of more value to to the buyers. Um, otherwise, we're on these parallel paths. And I think, yeah, I, I'll give you another example of one that's, this one, is something I learned about pretty early in my career, but it, it drives me nuts still that, that really not enough people pay attention to this. Is, so early in my career, I was Spent a large chunk of my career selling really expensive communication systems, you know, multi-million-dollar things to big enterprises all around the world. And it dawned on me sort of early as one of the earlier deals I was selling is like sort of hit me as like I was sort of at a certain point in the stage of the selling process, my selling process, and is that a point after a conversation with the buyer that I knew I was going to win the business? Now, it took me. Another, in that case, about another 60 days to actually win the order. But from that point forward, I knew
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was going to win the business. So what happened was, it was basically the buyer had made that decision and they based their business case and so on on our solution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, largely our solution. It's like one of those things where if you got an RFP and you looked at it and you said, oh, well, gosh, Andy was all over this, right? Yeah, he this, this, line,
0: this, this lines up to exactly what we're selling. Right. And yeah.
1: so, but this is every single decision people make about anything, and this has been researched, very well researched, is there's two stages they go through. Just to simplify it. The first stage is, I'm going to create options in my mind about how I'm going to solve this problem. And then I'm going to choose one of those options, and then go choose somebody to help me solve it. And, and this is what I was experiencing when I was selling a site. And it started repeating itself time and time again. On the deals I won, I knew well before, because I knew that the buyer's vision of success was largely based on what I was selling. And so this idea is that buyers, before they make a decision, they make a choice about how they're going to solve their problem.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And it's not necessarily completely buyer-specific, but it's largely based on, on a vendor. And Forrester did some research about this a number of years ago. And they said in the B two B world they were serving IT buyers, but if you were the seller that was able to get formulate the vision of success for the buyer first, that they bought into your your chances of winning were like at two thirds, like 65 percent mm-hmm. basically. And it's like, well, that, that was to me it's like, oh yeah, of course, because that's what I've been experiencing throughout my career. So I consciously, and I've written about this in my books, as as You want to, as a seller, I always want to aim at that first point because if I don't win that first point, if I don't get chosen by them as the solution, their preferred solution, then I have no choice, no chance of winning the business, or my chances are very, very slim. But again, you look at a sales process; it's all based on getting the order. And yeah, I use the analogy like if you were representing a chip company or trying to get your chip designed into a a larger product, I mean you have no chance of winning the business if you don't get designed in. That's mm-hmm. basically what this is, is you gotta get yourself designed in into their vision of success. Um you know, it doesn't exist in sales process. And I think it's a huge, a huge issue. So it's another one of those things where we're just not thinking about the right way.
0: Yeah, and it it's really interesting. And and I actually have a question about this. Um, sure. when when you think of it like that first, it's two decisions, right? It's the first decision and then the second decision. Yeah, I call you, it a choice
1: you, then a decision.
0: Yeah, a choice and then a decision. So we're not orienting around winning the choice. We're most most companies, I would say, all companies, all companies are <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah, most is probably weak. Individuals, that, yeah. individuals Indi- are orienting themselves around great, winning the choice. Yes. Great, great sellers are absolutely. Yeah. I, it also, and this is maybe more of an opinion than any data. It seems to me that you can't force the choice. As in, None. I can't push you through four stages of a pipeline I can't in order persuade to persuade you. you. Yeah, I can't get you to make your choice by X date. Right. Right you you need to identify all the problems feel confident in the solutions that you've come up with in your head and then only then on your own time are you going to actually be able to make that choice and i will find out if i've won the choice in order to know if i have a real shot at winning the decision yeah does that sound about right yeah it's about right yeah and but- and nobody's orienting on that
1: no, but this is this is how buyers are going through it and you know Gartner did again their buyer enabled and did their, their you know survey of all these these buyers it's basically what they found out yeah it is this is the jobs that buyers have to accomplish they put slightly different names to it than than I do but but again, there was no there those moments when you see that and he's like, you know, I'm nodding my head because like of course this is this is what I've known for years mm-hmm. and good sellers are other good sellers have known for years is this how people, Go through their process of making decisions. So to the point, is like, yeah, we can't. That's why I think that that, and this is a whole nother conversation, is, is I think one of the most unhelpful f- perspectives we give our sellers is, is that their job is all about persuasion. Mm-hmm. Because the job is about helping people. The job is about helping people. And and I, I posted about this on LinkedIn last week, and and it was I said, you know, it's just the optics, right? Buyers go on a journey. We have a process, as sellers, right? Buyers go on a journey with without an end destination necessarily in mind, without a defined destination in mind. Let's say, and we're gonna follow a process with the predetermined destination. And it's there's a mismatch right there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially. I mean, every buyer's journey is gonna be different and you, well, need to have, you need to account. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. And you you get the gold star for saying that cuz there's many people <laughs> that don't believe that. They think that they're all the, and they treat them all the same. And it's You know
0: it, if you can account for like 60% of them being the same, you would be in a pretty consistently happy boat. But even that feels like a bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean it's 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 almost like sellers have to sort of have this mindset that that they're not selling A standard product, but they're selling a custom solution Mm -hmm. every time, every single time, with standard elements to it. But and I get some of that because I spent was that chunk of my career doing just that, selling products that didn't exist. You know, I had a mandate to go out and and (laughs) sell big systems that didn't exist. They weren't. They didn't exist on paper. Mm-hmm. But to get the customer to to sell the customer a vision, have them pay us to develop that for them, um, and you just acquire sort of a different outlook at that point about even standard product sales. It's like, well, yeah, if you treat them as if they're unique, then they really feel like you're trying to help them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when you're when you're selling, uh, you know, like. Selling DNA, we have a product. We know what the product can do. Mm-hmm. We're selling it. We're selling that product. When, when you're talking about selling, you know, a system that doesn't exist, and you know, ha- basically, you're selling that choice because that's their vision. Like you said, they're forming the vision of how to solve this problem in their head, and then you're you're earning their trust to the point of their saying, "Right, I think this vision is right. I need you to build it for me," which mm-hmm. is a whole other sales process, right? <laughs>
1: But they're very similar in many respects yeah. though. I mean, even yeah. with standard products, if you that's my point, if you sort of take this approach from the beginning, that yeah, I mean, I on one hand, I sort of know because I know what my product does, and mm-hmm. and we've got certain limitations, but yeah, there's lots of ways to sort of create a vision around what the product does and what it will do for you. And that has to be a unique story. Yeah. And and I always get in trouble with with people that are storytelling experts when I say this, is that yeah, I, I think there's only one story you need to learn how to tell as a seller. That's the buyer's story. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to help yep. them create the story of what success is going to look like. And if you can tell that story, then you're gonna dramatically increase your odds of winning the business.
0: Yeah, and especially if you can tell it early.
1: Well, to your exactly. Point.
0: Right. Like the earlier you know that the story,
1: er- the well, better it's gonna be. And that's right. And that's why. This idea of having sort of a one and done discovery drives me crazy because it does such a disservice to sellers when we position it that way and train it that way, is because again, it's not it's the gap between knowing and understanding, right? Understanding mm-hmm. takes a lot more questions, takes a lot more involvement. But when you understand, then you have that credibility, you have that trust to sort of accelerate things that you didn't have if if you didn't have it, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's Every sort of thinks a lot of sellers have this idea that that buyers go through a process and they go through it at the same rate at the same time with every seller they're talking to. And it doesn't work that way.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because when you start to look at what you've just talked about from from like my perspective, from a revenue mm-hmm. operations perspective, if you if you can ch- actually, I don't. I, it'll be really hard to ever truly align all to all buyers' journeys, right? But if you sure. can train a sales team to do that at the best possible version of it, you would improve your forecasting at an incredible rate because identifying early on in discovery, am I going to win the choice mm-hmm. or not? If you're not. Like somebody comes to you with a pipeline problem, they say we have a pipeline problem. There's four thousand ways they can try to fix a pipeline problem, right? Ring, buying right. ring DNA is certainly on the list of ways sure. to try to fix a pipeline problem, but there are a thousand other options, and they might not be leaning towards you. And if I can identify early that I'm not going to be the choice, that's not real pipeline, and therefore that I can forecast more accurately. Yeah. My entire team can forecast more accurately, which now has downstream impacts for my CS team. Am I hiring CSMs to handle all this upcoming deal? Am I hiring implementation managers? Am I, this affects my marketing budget. Where are we at on growth opportunities? Are we landing expand? My whole model changes because I'm forecasting differently.
1: Well, but take the, the inverse of that, though, which is that because you've reached this level more quickly of understanding with the buyer and qualifying and re qualifying as they go through the buying process. Yeah, you know, I always sort of took guilty pleasure of that because I knew my competitors were spending cycles trying to sell that customer and they were never going mm-hmm. to win because they didn't have that understanding. So you're setting the them thing. back. I wanna I want to occupy as much of my competitors' yeah, yeah, time yeah. as possible because then they can't go out and work other opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, to me this was this was a huge competitive advantage because you work on a deal that you have High degree of confidence based on what you know and how you're influencing the choices the buyer's making along the way. That, yeah, I mean, it's hard to quantify it because, like all forecasts, but you have a much higher probability of winning that deal at that point.
0: Right. And, and, uh, to your point, if, if uh, your competitors aren't breaking up with that customer like they should be because they've lost that deal, that is a lot of wasted revenue on their part. Not, oh, pursuing something that win. yeah, 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 the opportunity cost is
1: huge. Yeah, and that, but you think about it. I mean, when we're in a business, the SaaS business, where most companies are operating sort of that 20% win rate, you're saying, Holy cow, that 80%, what are we doing there? Mm-hmm. Right? How do we get to this point where that's acceptable?
0: <laughs> yeah. One in
1: five. Yeah. Because it's like to tell audiences when I speak, and I spoke in groups about this, is like, okay, well, well, what are we training our sellers to do? We're, yeah, training, it, them, we're it, training them to lose because that's the thing they're getting the most experience doing.
0: Right. It's not even, a, we're not even matching Major League Baseball for a good hitting percentage. Before, <laughs>
1: yeah. right? We're
0: batting 200 and thinking right. that's great.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I think this again gets back to the point about when you align processes with the buyers, you get to certain points. To your point before, is yeah, you have the opportunity to disqualify people out, and and you know part of this comes from other issues outside this, like you know poor incentives around pipeline coverage and so on that that encourage bad behavior of this with you know bloated pipelines. But mm-hmm. again, I think if you get The process is more aligned between buyer and seller, you start addressing some of that problem.
0: Yeah. And and it's tough too. Like what we're talking about is, is a bit of an earth shattering thing for a lot of companies. Right. And and it requires a lot more, you know, we talk about aligning the buying process, but it actually requires stuff from, from like fundamental shifts for marketing, for example, if if we, if we talk about disqualifying somebody earlier on in the process, I probably would, would want to talk about shifting my definition of what is a qualified opportunity to sometime after that choice is made. Right. Yeah. If they, if they haven't made the choice that sales enablement software is a way to solve this problem, then they're probably not a qualified opportunity. But that has upstream impacts for marketing who has goals around qualified opportunities. So I need to then have them help me. You know, format this new definition of what is a qualified opportunity to make sure their goals align to that, and that they're marketing towards that goal and that sort of stuff. So it it, it requires a pretty big shift. Which, to toot my own horn, is is why you need somebody in revenue operations to, exactly. to go do those things <laughs> and <then> focus <laughs> on those conversations. Um, but it's super super important, yeah. obviously.
1: Yeah. Well, I, no, I agree that I think this unification is again, it's another thing. It's well past due, and it actually used to be pretty common about 40 years ago. When <laughs> I, started, I started my career, it was very common to have a VP that was responsible for sales and marketing, but we didn't have the technology at that point. It was you know, much different. It was much harder to align at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you because know, yeah, there weren't the tools. You didn't have attribution for leads coming all those things. But now, now there's no excuse. Now it makes perfect sense. So, all right, Jordan, we're running out of time, but um, yeah, we'll definitely have you back. Continue the conversation. It's been great. And if people want to connect with you, how can they do that?
0: Uh, Yeah, no, they can uh, certainly obviously connect with me on on LinkedIn. Um, Otherwise, I'm available jordan.henderson at uh, ringdna.com. And uh, it's been been great, Andy. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, do follow Jordan. He's very active on LinkedIn these days. So, all right, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Jordan Henderson, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.